Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. I'm Monty Larrick, and this is David Smith. Hello. The Executive Director of the Illinois Family Institute and Illinois Family Action. Dave, we are joined by none other than the Reverend Caesar LaFleur. Hoo-hoo! Back from the COVID knockdown. I have arrived <laughs> and arisen. I am back. Yeah. Amen. We're glad you're back in the saddle. Thank you. Caesar is our field director and part of our Rescuing Our Children movement. And... Uh, Boy, uh, a good day to have Caesar with us. A primary fight is underway in Illinois' new 1st Congressional District now that U.S. Representative Bobby Rush is retiring from office. Chris Butler is one of a dozen or so more Democratic (laughs) candidates vying to represent the new 1st District that's anchored in parts of the South Side, southern Cook County suburbs, though it heads south and west past Cook County. Most of its voters are packed into a small northern tip of the district. Chris is a husband, a father, a pastor, and describes himself as a lifelong advocate for families and communities. He's organized churches to combat uh, community violence through the Chicago Peace Campaign. Uh, Pastor, what makes you think that you can come out on top in this Democratic primary when you are opposed by the likes of Jonathan Jackson, the son of the Reverend Jesse Jackson, Chicago City Council member Pat Dow, and State Senator Jacqueline Collins. Well, I think that um, a lot of people are ready for something different. Uh, We have uh, sort of had the uh, approach of sending folks into political office through the same uh, sort of rhythm for a long time. You go to a fancy school, you work for a powerful politician, uh, and then you sort of take your turn. Uh, and that has just not worked for us. And I think people in the first congressional district a pastor are ready it's the to Chicago do way. Uh, it, it has been. I think that people are ready uh, for something different. I really believe that. And as we've been uh, out there knocking on doors and talking to voters for almost a year now uh, because we got into this race uh, in April of 2019 uh, before the sitting congressman announced he wasn't going to run again because we really felt like we need something different and a, and a, a, a new way uh, forward for our communities. Um, so we've been out there for a year having these conversations, and we really think that people are ready. I, I love your boldness and courage. Um, you know, Bobby Rush is the only one who beat Barack Obama mm-hmm. in the in an election. So you're taking on a you were you were going to take on, but now you know as the Lord would have it, Bobby decided I'm done, and he's and he's retiring, which opens the field up. And as Monty said, there's what 17 you said 17 yeah. candidates who are running for the first congressional district. Who's not running in the first district? <laughs> right, right. So, so ask, answer me this. How are the people responding to your message as you go door-to-door getting signatures? Uh, folks are responding uh, very, very well okay. uh, to our message. Um, there has been um, a one-track way of thinking, uh, only one sort of conversation that you can have, one way that you can think. Uh, and be sort of a, a recognized leader um, in, in our politics, and Democratic politics, especially in, in black Chicago politics. But I think people are waking up to uh, ask this question, who's doing the recognizing here, right? Like, mm-hmm. is this people in the community who are recognizing these folks as leaders? Or is this, you know, corporate media and, you know, sort of political power establishments 
far disconnected from our communities who are recognizing uh, these leaders. And, and I really believe that folks uh, want to say, we're going to choose somebody uh, who can really embrace the values that mm-hmm. we are living in our communities, the values that we have uh, learned from our parents Absolutely. and our grandparents mm-hmm. and, and that are this is really our legacy and birthright. Um, yeah. and, it, and it's almost as if uh, that legacy is being excluded from mm-hmm. a lot of our party's discourse, but, but, but you still want our votes but you don't want our legacy and our mm-hmm. values. And people are ready to say no to that. Pastor, um, one of the things I've always said is that Republicanism is a non-starter in mm-hmm. the black community, but not necessarily conservatism, mm-hmm. because many blacks you know, share those values, you know, conservative values. Many blacks are pro-life. You know, yeah. I remember there was a time when we didn't think that black people had abortions. I mean, that, was, that was something for the white folks. Mm-hmm. You know, so how are you... How are you uh, how are people receiving you? How are they responding to your conservative values? You're because a pro-life Democrat. Right, because yeah. you're a Democrat, you know, yeah. and so, but you have these conservative values. How do people respond to that? Are your values significant enough for them to overcome the Democrat part, or, you know, how does that happen? So I think that, you know, one of the things that, that I do is work in, in this thing called the, a ministry called the AND Campaign. Uh, and what we do there is really talk about this false choice and this false dichotomy, mm-hmm. right? right. Uh, the, there are a lot of people who have tried to push what I call religious exclusion, mm-hmm. which means that if you have uh, sort of any kind of like faith or values framework, especially if that framework is a Christian framework, then you just have to be excluded from the conversation. Mm. There are so many things that the folks I'm talking to uh, agree with me about and agree with the Democratic Party about, you know. Um, But then you have these values that folks almost feel like there's this false choice. You have to either be a Democrat or you can live these values that you've learned in church, that you've learned from, uh, like I said, your parents, your grandparents, that are your legacy. Yeah. And uh, what we've said said at the door, and people are really embracing it, is that there's actually no dichotomy here, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there's nothing to say that you can't be a pro-life Democrat. There's nothing to say that you can't be a pro-family Democrat. In fact, that used to be a thing inside the Democratic Party. Um, Especially been, on the south side of uh, Chicago. Absolutely. And, it, and it, it's been systematically removed. And so people are excited and refreshed uh, to know that there's a leader uh, who can, you know, who comes from the community, uh, understands the, the struggle and, and the work of, of working class people, um, and, and really, I'm finding it's not just in the black community, right? Like, you're finding it in the black community. Uh, but the first congressional district under this new map uh, is, is about, is just over 50% uh, African American. Uh, but it is, it, this map is not even like the, the district that just got redrawn. About half the vote is, is in Chicago. About half of it is not. Okay. Uh, and all over this district, I mean, we've walked in communities up in the south side of Chicago, but we've been in Mokina, we've been okay. uh, in Frankfurt, we've uh, been all over uh, uh, this district. And everywhere you go in this district, whether you're in uh, the south side of Chicago, Evergreen Park, Mokina, down in Bourbonnet, uh, there are working class people who uh, live working class values and are not finding expression uh, in their party, and they are refreshed by Mm. the idea that inside of their party, they can find a voice. Well, that brings up something, okay? So 
we've seen the Democrat Party um, being hijacked by the left wing of the party, hasn't it? And so, and, and a lot of people are rejecting this, uh, you know, the critical race theory, uh, the transgender pronouns, um, or transgenderism in, in, in general, or the sex education in our schools. And so you're, you're a moderate to conservative voice in the Democratic Party, well, probably a conservative voice, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that is, you're saying, refreshing to these folks. Yeah, because none of us, you know, live in a community where everybody thinks exactly the same way right. about these right. issues. Uh, and the syst systematic silencing of any dissenting voice uh, within our party actually is a miscarriage of democracy because these communities that, you know, vote Democratic. First Congressional District is, I think, like D plus 41, right? Um, <laughs> so the, these are folks who vote Democratic. But that doesn't mean that they are a, a monolith, especially when it comes to these cultural values and these family values. There, there's so many people uh, throughout the, the communities that make up the 1st Congressional District who, who think differently. And, and even folks, I've talked to folks who are, uh, you know, super pro-choice, right, uh, and have decided to support my campaign because they know that even though they are pro-choice, when you look at a party that is 100%, you know, pro-abortion, that doesn't reflect your home. That doesn't reflect your faith community. That doesn't reflect your neighborhood. There is um, a, a diversity uh, of values and thought in the community. And even people who disagree with me on certain issues are refreshed by the idea that we should have debate, that we should have diversity, um, diversity <laughs> inside of our party. Diversity is not just you know a a, a racial thing. Diversity is also um, you need the diversity of ideas. And and so we have folks who are supporting this campaign uh, who don't even agree with me on some of these issues, but are encouraged by the fact that I'm saying that we can't silence broad cross sections of the community just because they don't agree with the folks who have the money and sort of the reins of, of power. Pastor, I remember watching a political movie. <clears throat> Warren Beatty was in it, I think, Bullworth or something. Mm -hmm. But I just remember that uh, when the candidate came to do a presentation and he was confronted, you know, because this black guy was with this white candidate. Yeah. And he asked the question, can't we have more than one opinion in the black community? <laughs> and so th that's my thought. Even for yeah. the Democrat Party, you know, can't there be more than one opinion in the Democrat Party? I'm encouraged by people like you running Amen. As, a, as a conservative, mm -hmm. you're a Democrat. Uh, Bishop Harry Jackson, who just passed away, mm -hmm. was a Democrat, but he was a man of strong conservative values. Yeah. And I think that we're going to have legitimate political parties. We're going to have to have a balance in those parties where there's more than one voice. So uh, Democrats for Life, did you speak recently for them? And what do you think about them? Yeah, so I, I did speak recently uh, for Democrats for Life. Um, and I think that it's an important organization within the party because as, as we've been saying, you need to have uh, diversity mm -hmm. within the parties. You need to have diversity uh, within the government. And I, I maintain, we teach this uh, in the end campaign a lot, uh, that, you know, my main goal in civics and public life uh, is to be faithful to a set of values, yeah. right? And 
what that means to me is that if, if, if I'm conservative on every issue, I'm probably not being faithful. Mm-hmm. If I am progressive on every issue, I'm probably not being faithful. And so it's important on these issues that, we, these, again, these are the values that we are living in our communities. It's the values that we learn from our parents and our grandparents. Um, it is our legacy and it's, and it's our birthright. And we should stand up for those issues and we shouldn't allow people, uh, you know, uh, uh, just for the sake of progressivism, to push us out of places and ideas and values that have worked to strengthen our community, mm-hmm. right? Some, some of the things, you don't have to throw everything out yes, sir. Uh, just because you want to work toward change. There are things that we need to change. Uh, there are things that we need to uphold that have been anchors in our community. Yes. And, and, and I think that we're wise enough to distinguish between those. All right, before we take a time out here, I got a couple questions on the life issue. Mm-hmm. You campaigned for Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. His U.S. Senate campaign was this before or after you became pro-life? So this is after uh, I became pro-life, and the two things that I point out with this issue: one, the Barack Obama of 2004 uh, was a safe, legal, and rare uh, Democrat, not the Democratic Party that we have today. He was also pro-traditional marriage at that time. He he was, and, and he talked a lot in his in his Senate campaign about the the need for family and fatherhood. Uh, One of the best speeches he ever gave was on fatherhood. Yeah. Absolutely. And and the other thing that I point out for folks is is very important for this campaign um, is is that when I worked for Barack Obama in 2004, there was not a pro-life Democrat to work for. Um, And that wing and idea of the party, at that time it it wasn't dead, but it was, the party was starting to move in that direction. Uh, and to me, as somebody who grew up in Chicago, um, you know, I, I, I tell this story. I don't know if I tell it all the time on podcasts, and I don't even know if I'm going to get in trouble for telling it today. But <laughs> when, when I got involved and in, when I got bitten by the political bug, I was in sixth grade, actually. Uh, and um, in, in that time of, of middle school, it was actually the uh, early days of, of George W. Bush's cons- compassionate conservatism. Mm-hmm. So this is this is before a Bush presidency or any of the stuff. You know, when we look back on folks, it's easier once we see so many things. But this was the early days of you know the campaign and compassionate conservatism, and it interested me, um, and I actually wanted to get involved in Republican politics. But a little black kid living on the west side of Chicago, I couldn't find the Republican Party. Nobody around, right? And, and so it's really important um, in a lot of communities, especially those that make up the uh, first congressional district, you have uh, African-American communities and um, you know, uh, labor families and uh, folks who have democratic politics built into the culture of their community. Yep. And we cannot have an America in which party affiliation uh, creates ideological, an ideological monolith, right? There's got to be diversity of thought within the parties. There's got to be diversity of thought within the government. Um, I think that's extremely important. Yep. I'm a Democrat. 
I so I'm, I I can't bring diversity of thought so we to want, the Republican Party. We want party. big tents, but yeah. we want um, the best ideas to prevail. Absolutely, and and the way those ideas prevail um, is when you have that diversity. Right? When I have to say, uh, is is why I'm sitting down and doing this podcast because if I have to agree that everybody who's Republican is the devil and is irredeemably <laughs> evil, then there's no way that we can have a functional government. That's right. Right? That's right. Uh, we have to be able to sit down with folks from different parties, from different communities. That's right. Um, and find those places of agreement, of which there are many. Yeah, uh, sure. When you, when you get down to the people, right? Yep. There are many, many places of agreement. We've got to be able to sit down, find those places of agreement, uh, and do things to make life better for people uh, on an everyday basis. Uh, and I'm... The reason I'm in this race, uh, I got in in April because I'm deeply committed to that idea. Hold that thought. We're going to come back. But I'm interested to hearing what uh, we – pro-life is important. Mm-hmm. It's an, if you weren't pro-life, you wouldn't be here, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right? Sure. So, But I'd like to hear your other platform positions. What's important to you and what you want to get done if you were to be elected to Congress? Yes. All right. This is Illinois Family Spotlight. We'll take a brief time out and continue our conversation with Chris Butler, candidate for 1st District U.S. Representative. He's a Democrat, and goodness gracious, he's here with all us conservatives. So, all right, <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll do that, and uh, welcome back in just a brief moment or two. You can't learn from history if you erase it. For the Colson Center, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. What happens to fascist architecture after fascism? Asked a recent BBC Culture headline. Good question. Because buildings are made by peoples and cultures, they're never just functional, they tell stories. For example, a tax office in Balzano, Italy, features a mural of Benito Mussolini on horseback giving his infamous straight-arm salute. It's a remarkable piece of fascist propaganda architecture, writes the BBC's Alex Sakalis. Awe-inspiring, odious, and perplexing all at once. Well, for decades, the building has sparked conflict until yearly neo-fascist rallies and bombing attempts forced leaders to seek a compromise in 2017. So the tax office was left standing, its mural still visible, but over the top, the words of Hannah Arendt were written in LED lights, nobody has the right to obey. In other words, the duty of conscience triumphs over the demands of totalitarian regimes. Incredibly, the compromise seems to have eased the tension. We need not choose between romanticizing or demolishing history. Sometimes it's enough to let truth be put in context and then learn from it. I'm John Stone Street. Thanks for joining Illinois Family Spotlight. Monty Larrick here along with David Smith, the Executive Director of Illinois Family Institute and the Reverend Cesar LaFleur, Field Director for IFI. Grace and peace, everyone. Yes, and uh, we are joined by... Chris Butler, a pastor and a candidate for the first district congressional seat being vacated by Congressman Bobby Rush. Uh, Who's been there 30-plus years. 30-plus years. And one of the knocks on Congressman Rush is that um, he didn't make it out to the suburbs quite enough to talk to voters in these areas. You plan to change that if you're elected? Absolutely. And, you know, folks in a lot of the communities uh, 
around here and some of them that, that actually got drawn out in the map because we started campaigning before they uh, redrew the map will we'll tell you that. And we've heard that a lot uh, as we have spent time in, a, in many of our suburban communities uh, close and far uh, from the city. I mean, we everywhere uh, throughout the district. And we're, we're going to continue to do that. We're going to have uh, field offices in those places um, because, again, one of the core values of this campaign um, is that we have to be able to come together across different communities um, and work together to improve life for people uh, on a day-to-day basis. You know, when I think having worked on redistricting reform, uh, that there probably was an idea uh, in the drawing of this map to sort of disenfranchise certain voters. Uh, But when I look at this map, uh, I see uh, what I call a very American district. Uh, This district has, uh, you know, part of the South Loop, uh, it has McCormick Place. It has neighborhoods across the south side. It's got suburban communities. It's got uh, industrial communities. It's got a few rural communities. Um, it's it's very reflective of, of the nation. And I think that some of the things that I want to do here in the 1st Congressional District um, when it comes to bringing voters together for conversation about important issues uh, will not only improve sort of the legislative priorities that I'd bring to Congress, uh, but it it can serve uh, as a model uh, for how we um, do American politics again and make it work. I mean, I I, I keep reminding folks, and again, it's why I'm sitting here, uh, I'm running for the Democratic nomination. Uh, I'm going to run for Congress as a Democrat. Uh, But (laughs) one of the things I think a, a lot of our current representatives forget is that if you're elected to represent the 1st Congressional District, you got to represent the 1st Congressional District, not just the Democrats in the 1st Congressional District, um, but all of the people in the 1st Congressional District. And that means figuring out how to have conversations uh, in a lot of different communities and a lot of different spaces. Because if, if you don't have that sort of broad participation, you're going to have a stuck government. And Stuck government works for people who are already wealthy, uh, already powerful, (laughs) don't need much to change. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when you actually need things to happen uh, so that your business can thrive, so that you can build uh, that family and community wealth, so that your neighborhood and community can be safe, well, a stuck government then doesn't work. You actually need government to do stuff uh, and, um, you know, think about when to get involved, when to step out of the way. And if government is just stuck and frozen, that doesn't work. And as long as we're divided and, uh, you know, at each other's throats, that's what government's going to always be. Absolutely. So tell us your legislative priorities. I'd love to hear what you're what you think needs to be done to get us back as a culture mm-hmm. to where your you know your vision is? Yeah. So one of the 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 big things that's a passion for me uh, is correcting this uh, uh, a, a massive uh, income and wealth gap that has opened up uh, in the United States as uh, you know the economy changed quickly, um, taking a lot of. Uh, jobs and industry out of the United States. Many of the communities in the 1st Congressional District uh, were hit by that. Um, and when, when folks are unable to make a living, uh, it is very difficult for folks to build a life. Um, and so we have to think about how do we get uh, uh, industry uh, back in our country. I mean, we, we look at this uh, uh, inflation and 
inflation is, is crazy right now, but a big part of this inflation uh, is that we moved all of our means of production outside of our country. And so when the global economy uh, stops for just a second, it's hard to get back on track because everything that we uh, need to make a car, to build a home, to uh, literally do the computer anything. computer chips are not made here in the United States, so the car manufacturers yeah. can't make any more cars. Right. That's not good. It, right. it is Try buying a like car that. right now. Yeah. And Even a used car. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's literally you have uh, new car makers selling cars without the chip and, you know, with a contract that will get the chip, you know, and, and we'll put it in later. A lot of things have gone into, you know, sort of this uh, just-in-time, make everything, like, mm, more right. efficient. Yeah. And, yeah. and some of that stuff has not been good uh, for the people in, uh, in communities, right? And so it, it's a huge priority for me to, to figure out how do we begin to um, close that gap. Uh, and, and closing the gap doesn't mean uh, pulling down the top. Closing the gap means lifting up the floor. Uh, and All right, and you helped me to, out here now. Mm -hmm. Thank you, because that uh, my, the air went out of my balloon a little bit for you there when you're well, talking about this. We, it's, uh, <laughs> and we're, we're going to have things, I'm sure, that we don't agree <laughs> about in you know, some okay. of the economic things. I, I'm um, all for lifting boats. I'm not for uh, you know, pulling anyone down. So. You know, but, but some of the things that, that do this, you know, one clear example right, about how you could be getting some of this stuff done if we weren't in uh, what, what I call – I call it the stucktocracy, right? Stucktocracy, um, all right. So the, the stucktocracy <laughs> is where you have uh, super powerful folks on, you know, both sides positioning themselves on, like, opposite sides of this ideological yeah. uh, divide when really there's a shared um, sort of power interest to keep everything the same. Yeah, um, I, I would agree with you. And so they need serfs. Yeah. And so right. it's, it's, that's, this is exactly it. I mean, the, I always point to people, you know, because when I say income gap, people uh, automatically think about, uh, you know, putting that in, in, in racial terms, uh, which is, is not completely foreign to me. I get that, and I talk about it. But the, 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 the racial income gap is mostly constituted between the very richest white people and the very richest not white people. And then you got a whole bunch of people down in the, uh, like the 70th percentile and lower, black people, white people, That's right. Hispanic people, a whole lot of people in America who don't have anything. And so there's no gap because none of us have anything. Um, and, and so it, it's, it's really about how do you uh, begin to lift up that floor? Uh, another well, thing is illegal immigration play into this scenario of well, yours. Well, and I, I'd like to challenge you on the anything mm -hmm. because we have the wealthiest poor people in the world. <laughs> That's a, you know I, I will take that challenge. Okay. When we, if we pull it into a global context, you know, yeah, they have the flat screen right. TVs, they have the air conditioning, they have the you know you know the microwave. We we are the most fortunate blessed by God people in the world. So I just a small aside, but I want to I want to ask Caesar to get in on this because it seems to me one of the fastest way to close that gap or to elevate the poor in our country or the less fortunate is education. Absolutely. And Pastor, that was going to be, you know, my, my question to you. Now, my position here at Illinois Family is I'm the director of the public school exit project. Mm -hmm. And we think public schools are 
beyond repair here now. And so we're encouraging parents to choose homeschooling, homeschool co-ops, and things like that. I was also excited to hear that you were pro-life. So one of the things I want you to speak on is what's going on in the public schools now with the sexualization of our children through the sexual curriculum that's coming in, how that later on leads to more and more needs for abortions. So we're seeing coming right out of the school system, you know, the pipeline to the abortion clinic. So talk about your position on school choice, homeschooling, what do you think about the public schools? Or even the Federal Department of Education. The Federal Department of Education, absolutely. Talk about where you're going to be standing on that. So let me say this. I, I deeply believe in public education, right? Um, my thought about public education, and, and I think when we look at it historically, it's, it's accurate. Um, the thought about public education is that it is very important for our democracy to function, that the public is educated. I don't think that deeply ingrained uh, in that um, that idea is that all children need to be educated through the same right uh, common core curriculum. Yeah, right. And and so, you know, what I think you know, you are uh, organizing this public school exit. Uh, my view is that if a family wants to exit public school, and full disclosure. I'm a homeschooler. Yay! Um, <laughs> if a family wants to exit public school, they should be fully empowered to do so, right? Um, so I, I believe that we should well, what's spend the public mean? dollar. Yeah, uh, yeah well, he's yeah, going to flesh we, it out right here. We should spend the public dollar to yeah. make sure that children are educated. But we should give that public dollar to the family. Amen. So that, and, and this, you know, this does not preclude... Um, being in a, a, a school district that is run by mm-hmm. a unit of government. Because mm-hmm. if families want to choose that, they can choose that, and those monies will go there. But if families want to choose to homeschool, if family wants to choose to go to a private school, uh, we have to fully empower families uh, to access the highest quality education that they can right. for their children. And what I know um, is, is that there are not just children and families, uh, but brilliant educators mm-hmm. uh, whose educational entrepreneurship could be tapped through this uh, sort of approach to education. And I've, I've worked in school choice um, you know, uh, for a long time, I, I think since 2005 uh, or six, around that time, uh, expanding in, uh, school choice. We organized the Chicago School Fair, which was the first uh, school fair in the history of Chicago uh, that just included all schools. We had neighborhood schools there. We had charter schools there, private schools. We had homeschooling networks there uh, because it wasn't about pushing a particular uh, unit of education. Mm-hmm. It was about, hey, family, come Choose the best option for your kid. Well, you can't see it, but I gave you a spiritual high five on something. <laughs> and, and somebody, I'm just wondering. So you, if you're going to win, go to Washington D.C., become part of the Congressional Black Caucus. They don't share your view on these things. How much impact do you believe you'll be able to have in maybe bringing some other people around, uh, you know, to the other side of the table of that? Because 
you know, moving some of these things where the dollars are following the, the you know the children and, and things like that and giving parents real choice is going to take some real change mm-hmm. in in Congress. And so, and I, I think uh, Reverend Lafleur, you'll appreciate this, right? I I think that. One of the things that excites me about the potential uh, and uh, to be in the Black Caucus is that I think the Black Caucus needs a preacher. Yeah, um, <laughs> sure they do. To to remind <laughs> us, right? Because because there there is, and I'm I'm on on the up and up about this, right? Like there is an approach to uh, you know talking about school choice, talking about pro life uh, that is super foreign. Mm-hmm. To yeah. black communities right. and to the black caucus, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't always go over well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when 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 you can challenge folks to think about Fannie Lou Hamer, mm-hmm. right? Um, think about some of the speeches that Harold Washington made mm-hmm. about the life issue, mm-hmm. right? If we ignore this issue, we ignore part of our legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a it is a different approach um, to these issues, and 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 this is one of the things that I try to stress is one of the reasons, frankly, why I'm here uh, is that we there are differences and distinctions, and we cannot say that there aren't. We shouldn't try to pretend like there aren't, but there are tremendous commonalities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that when you go into the Black Caucus, I mean, I used to do this when I was organizing around education. Uh, reform and school choice, right? Come with me uh, to some of these schools and tell me that this is the best we can do for our Mm. children, Mm. right? These are our children. This is the future of our community. Um, And it's not just our children. These are our teachers. I mean, I I remember when I was working on charter schools, talking to the principal of a neighborhood school in Englewood. I won't call her name because I don't want her to become attacked. (laughs) But she told me if I could do, if I had the flexibility to do some of the creative things that charter schools and private schools are able to do, my school would be just as good as, you know, some of these other schools. Uh, so it's not even just the children. A lot of our educators need to be, need to have their educational entrepreneurship mm-hmm. tapped in a fresh way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I saw this. I, I, I know I'm talking a lot but that's okay so are you here um (laughs) i I saw this particularly in the pandemic when Mm. schools closed down the way communities and churches and educators uh came together around small communities of children i I saw school teachers partnering with churches Mm -hmm. uh, to educate children uh in in the church right because Mom and dad had to go to work. Yep. Uh, you didn't. You can't leave a third grader at home by themselves to right. do online learning. And so these educators, these churches, these community leaders, I saw it in nonprofit organizations, almost instinctively came together to create innovative ways uh, to educate our children. And when we look at a situation where my my thing is not to sort of be uh, uh, unnecessarily pejorative, right? But if you just look at the, the data that doesn't, I mean, it, it doesn't lie, we haven't been doing the best. We haven't been doing the best for our children. And so if it hasn't been working, 
then we should think about doing things differently. And when you look at what happened in the pandemic, it's a huge testimony to the fact that there's all kind of creativity in our communities. There's all kind of creativity. Uh, and we need to unleash educators. it. We have to tap that. Right? It is, unleash it. Is, it. Let it. Let it go. It is untapped potential. And I don't think it's going to hurt anybody. Like, I think that this is going to be No, if it, if it doesn't work, it's going to fall by the wayside. Yeah. People are going to give up on it, right? So let, I'd like to do a real quick lightning round, unless, Monty, yeah. you have another point. Speaking of the pandemic, mm-hmm. let's do, and these can be quick answers yeah. here. Uh, do you support a congressional investigation into the origins of COVID-19? I think that we need to find out where COVID-19 comes from. I'm uncomfortable with the idea uh, that we just sort of push it to the wayside. What is really still an unanswered question. Good. Are you concerned with the, the way the government has mandated executive orders and shutdowns and, and mask mandates and all these things for years when it was initially two weeks to stop the spread? With, I think most Americans would have said, yeah, okay, let's, let's bite the bullet. Let's, you know, feel the pain. But two years? Are you concerned about that? So what concerns me the most is our inability to get moving forward, right? Uh, there are a lot of people uh, in communities across the 1st Congressional District uh, who have a lot of passionate opinions about this. Um, the, a couple of things that concern me that I have uh, just reminded people over and over again, uh, especially when you're talking about the 1st the Congressional District, the city of Chicago in particular, uh, really when you're talking about uh, the unvaccinated, and I'm using my air quotes for those who are listening, um, you're talking about a lot of poor people of color, right? Like when you, when you look at the actual vaccine uptake, uh, vast majorities of people already had the vaccine. Um, many of the folks who held out on the vaccine are poor people of color. So if, if you and say, many of them are naturally immune now because they got the, the virus, right? And they've survived it. And yeah, but if, if you talk about doing anything that sort of disenfranchises um, you know, quote unquote, the unvaccinated. I think you got to be real careful about that. Well, what about the religious about... liberty aspect? I mean, it, 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 I think it's straightened out. But initially, mm-hmm. they wanted churches closed down, but, uh, you know, Planned Parenthood and the abortion mills were open. Well, at the liquor stores. I had to lead a church through yeah. uh, this pandemic. And um, I, I think, generally speaking, as we, you know, I'm deeply committed to civic pluralism. But I do not think that civic pluralism precludes religious liberty. It cannot. This, this concept of religious exclusion um, cannot become a part of our uh, civic life. Right? It, no, no, because then it's exclusion. It's, it is government is God, right? Yeah. That's what it was boiling down to. You need to bow to us. And, yeah, so you know, I, I think that, not that we, it's, it's time for us to, to move forward. Let, so me, I, let me ask you some other questions real yeah. quick. Short, short answers, mm-hmm. right? So... Um, Marijuana legalization, yay, nay. So decriminalization, yay. What has become commercialization, I think we need to look at. Yeah. I, oh. I just, and I know this is not going to be like a super popular thing. I don't think we should be throwing folks in jail for, for marijuana. Um, but to c- create another t- corporate commercial industry that can prey on, on communities I don't know that that's the best way to go. Okay. Um, There's a move afoot in Congress for federal legislation that would legalize it. Nationwide. Nationwide. And a lot of Republicans are behind this. So Yeah, I mean, I, I think well, you, you know who's leading have... that up, buddy, don't you? 
former speaker John Boehner. Oh, well, he stands to make some money about this. Yeah, yeah I mean, and, and we need to have Republican. bipartisan, interparty debate over these issues, right? Like, you, yeah. the, the forced consent is the thing that concerns me uh, the right, most. Right, right, right. Um, well, neither side of this should be silenced. Well, let me just side. hit you with a foreign, um, um, in foreign affairs issue. Mm-hmm. Ukraine. Should we be involved militarily in the Ukraine-Russia um, conflict? Standoff, yeah. Standoff, yeah. So I'm, I'm an advocate for families and communities. I think if you go talk to families uh, and, and folks in American communities and ask them if they're ready for another military conflict, uh, you're, you're just going to get a resounding no. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Americans are kind of tired with it, tired of that. I got a quick Life question for you again. Uh, would you vote, if elected to Congress, for an omnibus spending bill that included mm. taxpayer funding for Planned Parenthood? I don't think we should be using taxpayer dollars to fund Planned Parenthood or abortion at all. And I, I disagree with the thought that by opposing that and voting no on that, which I will do, but I, I, I think it's important to say in the same breath that that doesn't mean that we can't get that bill through. Um, it means that we got to get back to the table and do more work. Uh, I wouldn't want to give up on uh, a piece of legislation that I believed in, and I don't think that holding, holding out to protect uh, un, unborn children automatically kills uh, legislation if, if you're committed to it. I think you got to commit to the priorities and the purposes of the legislation, uh, but you also got to hold the line for value. So I would not support it until you get that out of it, um, but I'd, I'd continue to push for it until we get a clean version of good priorities that can just do what the thing is supposed to do. And if we want to have an up-and-down vote on funding Planned Parenthood, let's have an up-and-down vote on that. Um, Boy, that you know, in Springfield they have something where they call uh, in 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 the in the capital um, non-germane. So if you have a bill on on funding Planned Parenthood, you can't throw something in there about funding oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. Right? <laughs> it's got to be germane mm-hmm. to the issue. In 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 D.C., it's a hodgepodge. Everything gets yeah, everything poured can into go in. and, and the I, omnibus and I think, bill, right? Let me say this. I think that we have to start doing it. Right now, one of the things that is breaking my heart is that the child tax credit, um, uh, the robust child tax credit was uh, uh, allowed to expire, right? It was included in a big omnibus package, uh, and it didn't hey, get through. Hey, as a dad of eight, I'm with you, brother. <laughs> but, and, and I'm saying, you know, I've been telling people, like, Mitt Romney's got a child tax credit plan. Um, yeah. You can get a bipartisan approach to this if you focus on this important right. issue that has large bipartisan support. Maybe you can't get this huge right. package, but let's get these things that we can it's so and improve the to, lives of people every day. You know, there's a birth dearth coming, right? Yeah. And we see this, and, and this is one way to encourage more, more babies, but it's also something we need to figure out a way to encourage marriage because marriage is really plummeting in the view of the newest generations coming up. And we've got to elevate that because the mom and dad environment, raising children, is the best way to raise future productive members of society. 
and and the, the the best way to close that income gap too in a good way I shouldn't say the best but a good way maybe a great way to close that gap yeah and and there are people who come to child tax credit from a, a totally different sort of uh, sort of set of philosophical reasons yeah um, my thing is you you have enough votes to do it yeah. So let's do what we can do, what we have a more responsibility to do for children and families in the United States, um, even if that means that we can't get, you know, uh, that, that we have to do it. Just focus on this one thing. We, we shouldn't uh, lock these important priorities into these massive packages. You know, I'm, I'm 37 uh, years old uh, uh, this year, and I'm all for you know, long hours on the floor, uh, voting on, let's, let's vote on bill after bill, what is, what passes and is going to improve the lives of people, child tax credit, um, let's, you know, let's pay for vision and hearing and dental for our older Americans. Like, these, these are things that have brought bipartisan support, and then there are going to be things that we have to negotiate and renegotiate and figure out um but this ductocracy is working for nobody <laughs> except for the most wealthy and the most powerful we got to add that to our dictionary i we like that yeah. here's one for you uh, just in the future snollygoster <laughs> i had a homeschool kid in my church give me that name and it, it literally means a unscrupulous um politician ah scollygoster well, anyway, uh, Pastor Butler, uh, where's your church? Uh, so we are in South Holland uh, at uh, 159th and Cottage Grove, and uh, we had a meeting in Hyde Park that closed because of COVID that we do plan to relaunch this year. So okay. uh, very excited about that, too. All right. We're, and uh, your website? Uh, how oh, can man. people get in contact with your campaign? So I encourage people to go to www.electchrisbutler.com. You can connect with us there, sign up for our email list, uh, make a contribution, volunteer, uh, and and help do something very different and exciting, not just in democratic politics, but I think in American politics, uh, this will signal uh, a a real change and a real way forward. Well, uh, Chris, you're a big thinker, uh, man of vision and big ideas, and we appreciate that. We may not agree on everything, but I think we agree on a lot of things. So uh, mm-hmm. maybe we're making some headway here. I will say that he'd be a vast improvement over Congressman Bobby Rush. That's for sure. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, and thank you folks for tuning in. Please tell your family and friends about Illinois Family Spotlight, and please support the work of Illinois Family Institute. Until next time, stay healthy, stay active, and God bless. For more information about Illinois Family Spotlight, visit ifiaction.org. And to email questions and comments, do so at feedback at ifiaction.org.